Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today and sitting in with me is Teresa Morrow. Hey Teresa, how you doing? Hi Tim, good. Excellent. We have two awesome guests today. First up, we have Annalie Blank. You all know her from a little show called Game of Thrones. I don't know if anyone remembers that show. Uh, she worked on many seasons of it, received many awards, Emmys, the whole deal. Welcome to the show, Annalie. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. No problem. We also have Katie Wood. Katie Wood has worked on uh, Lord of the Rings as well as Ant-Man and the Wasp, one of my favorites of the Marvel movies. Welcome to the show, Katie. How are you today? Very good. Thank you again for having us. We're here to talk about the movie Just Mercy, which is uh, very different from Ant-Man and the Wasp and Game of Thrones. <laughs> there aren't any major battle scenes or fight sequences. Uh, this movie kind of lives in a much quieter world. Yeah, maybe before we get too far, we should explain the plot of the film just to orient people as to where it's taking place and why when it's, it's taking when place. it's taking place and why it sounds the way it does. Okay, well, uh, Just Mercy is based off a book. It's a true story about a lawyer named Brian Stevenson who went to Harvard Law. He was one of very few black men who went to Harvard Law at that time, uh, and then he decided to take a pro bono job down in Alabama to look at death row inmate cases in the late 70s, early 80s. And at that time, no inmates on death row had ever been let off death row. People were getting put on death row before their trial, just based off how they looked. And if any of you guys want a good read, you should read the book Just Mercy because it, it the movie only could grasp a small bite out of that book. So Michael B. Jordan plays Brian Stevenson, and Jamie Foxx plays one of the death row inmates that are in the book, uh, Walter McMillan. That's interesting that you talk about reading the book. Did you get any uh, kind of inspiration for the soundtrack through the book? Definitely. I read the book, and you can, you can hear what these white men sound like, and you can hear sort of the vibe of what these prisons were. And uh, it's not someplace I would ever really want to be. Yeah, I'd say the, the overall baseline sound in your film is lower than your average drama where it's mostly dialogue. Um, so those few moments where the sound effects do build, I think has... It's a lot of impact, but to me, the film is a really slow burn in terms of the overall volume of the film. It's like, it all is like intense and low. Well, it wasn't originally that quiet. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, when we did a sound spot with our director, he was talking about how loud death row is. Death row is a loud place. It's one of the loudest parts of the prison, period. And those guys are in these small cells. And even if you're not crazy when you go in there, you become crazy. Yeah, so people would be singing to themselves or just basically banging on stuff and going nuts. And also um, the geography of the prison, just to give it a bit of context, is you, you know the row where our main protagonists are. There is an identical row below them because they're on the second level. Then there is another row behind their back wall and then also below them. So there's like, you know, 40-odd cells all there with all people all the time. So it's that's where, you know, at first we were trying to fill that up while still keeping the intimacy, and then we just basically went 
for the story. On our first couple of passes, Destin said, um, you know, it's not really about the ambience of having the correct prison sounds. They could be talking in their living room. It just evolved while we were mixing. And he just came to this realization, you know, he, he's like, it's not about the prison. It, it is, but it's about these two characters. Death row inmates do not go out on the yard. They do not interact face to face with many inmates. So to create that relationship with a wall there, how do you do that? You know, there's various scenes where we do experience some of the prison and the activity. And so hopefully what we wanted with that is that people really remember at that moment how many of them are there. But then when in the more intimate scenes, it's we don't have to be reminded. The audience doesn't need to be reminded of that. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that would take us to dialogue and how, what kind of challenges did you guys have with dialogue considering it's very much out in the open? Katie did a lot of crying. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. It was um, a very surgical approach was taken to the dialogue, I would say, you know. Uh, Yeah, by Annalie and by myself because, as she said, we had nothing to hide behind as we got quieter and so you know there were challenges the usual sort of location recording challenges because a lot of the film was shot in a working prison so there were things that had to be removed or excised from the takes it it was tough sometimes and then also then it was like how do we delicately put in ADR to replace some of those things that just couldn't be fixed or loop group that was appropriate but not too over the top and so a lot of the usual challenges somewhat exacerbated by not having much of a cushion. <laughs> well, especially when you start taking other things down, you know, one of our producers is like, what's that sound? I hear a sound there. I'm like, yeah, that's your production track. Oh, can we take that out? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's like, well, then you will have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it got very quiet. So within this film, there is a scene where one of the characters uh, faces the electric chair. And I've seen that type of scene in a lot of other movies. And when that switch is flicked, you hear electric sounds and sizzling. And with you guys, you went a very different direction for that. And I was just wondering, is that also something that changed as you got into the picture? Or were you always directed that way? Well, there was an execution specialist on set who had done over 120 executions. And Destin said he was very creepy to talk to. Uh, He said it was loud during those, but it wasn't a sizzling sound that you would hear. And uh, Yeah, and we also felt that the, the horror of the moment was taking this man's life. It wasn't, we weren't trying to also make it some sort of more visceral experience for an audience that seemed unnecessary and heavy-handed. And so we went with the approach that everything was just a lot quieter and hopefully that also gives the audience an opportunity to really consider what just happened or is happening. Mm -hmm. So how did the workflow break down as co-supervisors? Who tackled what? Uh, Katie did... Dialogue extraordinaire, uh, cued all the ADR in the group and handled that. 
directed the actors and the group and uh, we got Barbara Harris to be our group leader and she got all her wonderful people involved and I was finishing Game of Thrones when we were starting this film so Katie handled a lot of it up front and I oversaw a lot of the sound design, recorded stuff, mixed the dialogue and music. So is that unusual to be involved in the sound design, but then when it gets to the mix stage, you switch over to the dialogue? I actually love doing that. This is why. I love doing a lot of sound design. I love cutting effects. I don't like to cut what I mix necessarily because I like to have, for instance, Matt Waters was our effects mixer who does Game of Thrones with me, and he'll go through a scene and be like, yeah, that sounds shit. And I'll be like, wait, what? You know? <laughs> and he gets a different approach on it that's not biased based off how long something took to create. And so he goes at it from a story perspective, which is very frustrating sometimes, but also great. Yeah, it's the objectivity. You know, yeah. It's very helpful. So you can't be precious about your stuff at that point. And it's helped <laughs> me not to be precious. It's good not to be precious about any sound. It's all about mm. really what's best for the movie and what's best for the story. And I found that if I'm mixing the sound design that I create, I do become my own worst enemy in that way. So I'm taking myself out of the equation. <laughs> do you mean like you, you're sort of fighting back? Uh, yeah, maybe in, in, in the mix. And in, and if I'm just focused on dialogue and music, then it's more of really the what's best for the story and what are they saying and not, you know, let me get my low frequency hum through here <laughs> or whatever, you know. <laughs> you mentioned Loop Group a minute ago. Some of the parts of the film that I really thought rang true were the courtroom scenes and the sounds of the people when various verdicts are read and decisions are made. That is stuff that can really lend itself to cheesiness if it's not done with uh, delicacy. And I thought you guys did it really well. Uh, how, how did you go about directing that loop group to achieve that? Uh, well, I split the loop group into two days. One was an African-American loop group who were to cover those scenes, so the co covering the scenes of Walter's family in the house and everything, and then also to carry through. And, and a lot of them, we picked out certain people to be those characters because you see them, you know, you see the grandmother and the lady who's serving the tea and all that sort of stuff. So um, then they came through and did all the courtroom scenes. And then I had a day with a bunch of racist white people uh, that was... <laughs> <laughs> that were either from the South or uh, used to be from the South, were very genuine article. Hopefully not racists, but, you know, you can't tell. But um, so they so they did a... So I had them through the all the courtroom scenes reacting as though they would, um, you know, the white people being all sort of offended as, as, the, as things unfold and or triumphant towards the beginning and, and you know, the emotional toll it took on the family and everything. So they were they were all great actors and really good and enjoyed being able to follow the whole performance through, you know, particularly the African-American group because they identified with the families and a lot of the people were from the South. So, but then we spent a lot of time mixing those scenes to make sure yeah. that they were, that, like you say, they rang true. So that's, that's great. Thank you for saying that it, you felt it did because we were... It was always, we were sometimes, ooh, oh no, we're going to have to bring that person down 2 dB. Ooh, it's getting a bit overt now. You know, right, and they're sort is, of always balancing it. Yeah. Why is there so many coughs? <laughs> oh, yeah, Everybody's coughing. Okay, what's, 
<laughs> yeah, Luke back does have this tendency to do that sort of, you know, okay, this is a courtroom ambience. <coughs> And there's all that. <laughs> and with our first temp, when we just had a couple of pre-records, we put them up and hadn't had time to sort of really balance them, and it just turned into an emphysema ward. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, once we got the real people in, it was like, okay, no coughing people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, so we, we tried to play the delicate balance of hearing the reactions, but also in a courtroom, the, the judge is going to hit the gavel if people are too loud, you know, that's their... Their job is to keep the peace in every way, so we were sort of always treading that line but still hopefully getting a few of those reactions through. Yeah, I thought it worked really effectively. That's something that drives me nuts in a lot of shows when the crowd just seems forced on you. Oh, lots of, oh, all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did not do that. We f- And, you know, we found a lot of alternative takes in production that we put in to layer mm. in so it's not just loop group. Yeah, and also with the uh, loop group, I didn't let them pre-look at the scenes before they watch them, so they do all suit up as we sort of name it and put on headphones, and I'm like, just react but keep it subtle um, to what you see. And so a lot of the first recordings, you know, maybe I'd do two or three takes to lay, be able to layer it in there of um, the whole scene, then there was a genuine reaction. How did you deal with reverbs in these small practical shooting locations that are just cement boxes you know there wasn't too much reverb on their voices no on the production uh they did a pretty decent job masking that and you know they're speaking pretty softly so the reverb wouldn't be super crazy any reverb that you hear is added most of the time except for when he slams his hand down on the desk and says we're done here Speaking of slamming, there's a moment in the movie where uh, Michael B. Jordan is talking to Tim Blake Nelson and uh, someone smashes their hand into the front of one of the vending machines out off camera. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I almost jumped out of my seat when that happened. Well, you, oh, excellent. We yeah, tried to make that we happen. We tried that, you know, because Tim Blake Nelson is amazing in that scene and he, he – you just are leaning in, waiting for him to say the truth, and you know that he's about to say something until that happens, and he's jolted to not. And that's when he walks out, and you go, damn it! (laughs) So can you each maybe tell us a moment in the film, sound moment that you thought you were really proud of or that worked out better than you were expecting? Maybe, Katie, do you want to go first? I liked where we got to with the execution scene which is sort of hard to say, <laughs> like it, because it's like, oh, it's so grim. But um, the jail gets very quiet, and this is what happens apparently on death row too. You know, everybody knows that somebody is, is going to be killed that night, so the jail becomes very quiet. But then as the person is getting closer to the time, the inmates do exactly as they were doing in our film, where they make a lot of noise and racket and call out to the person to try and just sort of make them feel like they're not alone when they die. Yeah, that was a pretty impressive scene because not only was it one of the louder moments in the film, it also shrinks down into one of the quietest moments when you just hear the man breathing. Yeah, and we, you know, we spent a lot of time working on that scene. It was very depressing. (laughs) But I'm proud of where we got to with it. And it's the pivot of the whole film, I think, you watch the film up to that point and it's like, oh, it's sort of about the law and it's about these people's individual stories. But 
as soon as you get to the other side of that scene, you're like, the death penalty's wrong. <laughs> like, and this, the rest of the story, you're you're in a different place for the whole rest of the story. It's a scene that's really dependent on the sound to take the audience to that place of seriousness. That's my favorite part of the, the movie, too, as far as sonically and storytelling and what we could achieve. Katie, I have a question for you that uh, we might have to edit out if I'm way off target here. But do you have anything to do with the software virtual, Katie? Yes. So you are the Katie of virtual Katie? I am. Wow. How, tell us, how, what, what's the background there? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I was working on that little trilogy, Lord of the Rings, um, and it was when we were doing the first film and the amount of changes that were coming through, picture changes, were large, to say the least. And a lot of visual effects updates and so forth. And the way that, you know, we would get the information from the picture departments in terms of change notes um, generated by Avid, it was just a, they were the size of a bloody phone book. Because in the first film, I was a, the, you know, effects recordist and an assistant. So I um, would collate all the numbers. So basically, it's, it's not that hard. You either use a time code calculator um, that does feet and frames or you just uh, use it do you use it in your head because ostensibly it's base 16 old algebra stuff. So I used to do that and then um, some of the members of the team, well, all of us together all sort of basically were using um, quick keys to find ways to conform and wrote sort of little scripts and stuff. In particular, it was um, John Mackay and uh, Tim Nielsen and Chris Ward and then, so basically we sort of managed to automate to some extent the process of conforming so that we could spend more time in the creative side of things. And we had plenty to do there. So then after a certain point, John Mackay kind of ran with it and made proprietary software, which was based on EDLs. So you feed in a couple of EDLs and compare them and then pop it out the other end. Um, that's just the sort of Reader's Digest version. And um, unbeknownst to me, decided to name it after me because of all the work I've done. And it was quite funny because he told me and I was, well, I wasn't horrified, but I was slightly shocked that (laughs) this uh, thing, Virtual Katie, I was like, oh, God, that sounds like some sort of porn site. And he was like, no, it doesn't. Anyway, it was all very funny. (laughs) So, yeah, and then I uh, would, I've done various things where I've helped people I've taught people how to use it and all that sort of stuff over the years. And now she's been surpassed, and I'm quite happy about that. That's fine. Actually, another friend of mine, Justin Webster, uh, makes a great program called Conformalizer that uh, yep. we use now. So, yeah, that's kind of, you know, steps beyond. That's uh, virtual Katie on steroids. But it's its own thing. It's not – he didn't copy that. Yeah, what's a, what's with New Zealand and automated conform software? Well, we just found, we thought the whole thing that you'd spend all this time conforming and not being creative, we found that quite ridiculous. You know, I think that's why it was out of sheer bloody-mindedness, I think. In New Zealand, a lot of the time, you know, the budgets are very small for films. You know, it's a tiny little wee country of, like, only a handful of million people and a bunch of sheep. So the films are generally were generally locked or very close to locked. So dealing with conforming was somewhat new to us, actually, back when Peter made The Frighteners in um, 96? I think it was 96. 
And so there were lots of changes there. And I was like, oh, this American way of doing things. We make all these changes. Mm, this is very pesky. So, you know, we were just trying to find a solution to a problem. So I'm not, well, I, uh, that doesn't really answer why there are all these things coming out of New Zealand. But, you know, there you go. Just people who don't want to put up with bullshit, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> you know. New Zealanders are kind of no bullshit kind of people, especially Katie. No. <laughs> That's why I love working with her. <laughs> well, I spent many, many hours early in my career working with Virtual Katie, so it's an honor to oh. be speaking with its namesake. Oh, excellent. I'm, I, I hope she was helpful. Now we just got to invent a software called Automated Onoli or something like that. And yeah, that's right. Auto-honor. Auto. <laughs> I was actually thinking about that, only technology-wise, what's uh, what kinds of things are interesting to you these days? Um, just finding tools that work great, great reverbs, good delays. Um, one thing that was really amazing about working on Game of Thrones for almost ten years was dealing with that kind of production audio. Um, it's not in modern day, so getting that stuff clean with keeping the dialogue. Sounding good. I really hate over noise dialogue. I just, I would rather leave the noise in. And you, Katie? Uh, yeah, I always like sort of trying out new tools, you know, uh, that can maybe help cleanse dialogue or do something cool with effects and so forth. But at the same time, I've found over the years, as I think a lot of people have, you know, after a while, you know, you start sort of going, oh, this is a great toy. Oh, look at what it does. It's great. And then you go, oh, I think it did too much. Or, hmm, I really just needed to have a good sound to begin with. So it's fun to play with the toys, but it's great to just sort of realize that a well-recorded sound and a well-recorded piece of dialogue is pretty good. Yeah. On Game of Thrones, we went out to Ireland and we recorded a whole library for the series. And it made it a good learning platform. So, you know, on every film we get, we're like, whoa, ooh, what can we record? Because that's the fun mm. part. Whether you use it or not, don't know, but you can say that you went out and tried. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been really great to talk to you. What are you guys working on next? We are finishing a little film called Birds of Prey. Harley oh. Quinn, Katie supervising. I am just mixing. Not just mixing. <laughs> She's doing an amazing job. It's a very, it's a, you know, obviously a dialogue music film with a whole lot of sound effects in it. So yeah. <laughs> it's basically, it's quite the antithesis to Just Mercy. It's just packed with sound. Yeah. Uh, so we're currently um, just working on the, the M&E and we have a few things to touch up next week and uh, almost done with that one. That comes out February 7th. Yeah. Nice. Well, I think we're all looking forward to that one. Thank you very much for joining us, and hopefully we'll have you on again someday. Thank sure. you. Sure, thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Bye. Bye. Dumbbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders, and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H, or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 